Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Figuru. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 7, The Curious Case of Dean Winchester. Let's get this show on the road. Just a warning that today we will be discussing the subject of suicide during this episode. If that's not something you're ready to listen to now, or at all, that's totally fine. Feel free to skip this episode either for now or for good. We understand. Do take care of yourself. That's what's important. Thank you. So for context, we haven't really recorded in almost a month And that's been due to Rochelle's wedding, to you moving provinces, which is huge, and to me starting my PhD. Yeah, the three of us sort of just like, you know, let's have all of our huge life events happen at the exact same time. Right. Well, I mean, that way, at least, you know, like we put everything on pause for about a month. Uh, and we're we're kind of ready to start back. Like, luckily, we had recorded lots of episodes over the summer to kind of make sure that there would be no gap in posting episodes for our listeners. I also must just say, I love the fact that we, you know, took a pause and still released things and then released more than usual. We're the best at taking breaks. <laughs> I know we are the best at taking breaks. We break real good. We we break good. Kit Kat got nothing on us. It does feel good to be back. It does. (laughs) So are we ready for our first recap back after, you know, these big life changes? (laughs) Count me down. All right. Three, two, one, go. We are introduced to the concept of a age-stealing poker game somehow. Sam and Dean try to go after that, and they get Bobby involved, and Bobby gets there first and loses a bunch of his years, and then Dean's all like, I'm going to get your years back, Bobby, and gets his years back, but then loses all of his years, thus leaving Sam the only one, you know, like, young and able-bodied. Poor Dean has to suffer with being old all of a sudden, and Bobby has to be confronted by his limitations. We find out that the card-playing guy's witch of a girlfriend also has some secret plots, and in the end, everyone kind of goes back to the status quo, but we get a really sad ending, and Bobby and Dean have a good bonding moment. Time. You know, I remember prepping this episode, but I really don't remember anything that I wrote. So everything is going to be a surprise for me. (laughs) Even this recap, I was like, I'm going to do a quick like wiki read. And I was like, oh, right. Nothing really happens. We can jump to the long game right away. Like this is a pretty self-contained episode. Like there isn't going to be much in the long game, actually. This is a very bottle episode. There's a lot of talk in the fandom about Dean lifting the covers to look at Cliff's crotch. I I assumed that would be a thing. Like the writing team sort of explains this away as like his wife having told the boys about like a birthmark, quote unquote, there, you know, wherever that is. But he already has a pretty specific tattoo and Sam had already found it and his ID. So like, did Dean really need to check the birthmark is my question. If Dean really didn't want to, they would have found another way. To ID him. Like, you know, his wallet. (laughs) They did. This to me is that combination of like, Dean is totally open to this. And also just the curiosity of like, I gotta see this birthmark now. (laughs) 
The birthmark, really? That's what he wanted to see? It can be two things. <laughs> Sam says, for a witch, you're so nice, it's actually kind of creepy. And I'm obviously thinking about another witch that Sam is going to meet in later seasons with who he's going to form a strong bond. Please be Felicia Day. Please be Felicia Day. Please be Felicia Day. I know she's in the show, but I don't know who she plays or what she does. So if she can be a good witch, I'll be very happy with that. Let's put that down as like a prediction, perhaps? Sure. Since there's like so little in the long game, do you just want to talk about the episode overall? Weirdly, the second time that people playing with cards has made me ridiculously emotional at the end of an episode. Oh, yes, that's true. I love how you really care about like these one episode characters. Like it makes me it makes me happy to know that you are a good person. <laughs> I expected a worse ending. Worse how? I really was expecting that kind of supernatural cliche twist ending with like this kind of like one off, like we'll never see them again. So we don't have to have like a conclusion where like they were going to have the card game so she could officially like, you know, give up her life to him. And then she would secretly be like, oh, pocket aces. In fact, I win. Give me all your life. This was a trap. And she's actually evil and just wanted to get rid of him. Like I was genuinely like, this is moving. This is touching. I'm feeling things. They're going to pull the rug out from under me. There's something that we have to remember, and it's that season five, even though it's not the last season of the series, is a season about endings. I'll be curious to kind of keep track of that over the next few episodes for the season, because that's kind of... Wholesome isn't the right word I'm looking for here, but there's something kind of like... Fulfilling. Cyclical. You know, this is... Kripke's last season, so we're going to see a lot of things about, like, endings and what form endings might take, and this is one of them, I think. We'll get into story time and more of what the the development for the characters, because there was some nice evolution in certain areas, but it was a fun episode, like, some of the jokes that got to pull off, some of the, I think, old Dean and Bobby banter is gold, yeah, I was going to ask you about Old Dean. What do you think about oh, that? Oh, I love Old Dean. I think they play the same joke twice with him, which is him having like a, am I having a heart attack or a stroke? And Bobby being like, no, it's just indigestion. Or no, it's just your sciatica. It's just like, you're getting old. Deal with it. It's one of those jokes that works so well, they could do it twice. And I was like, you know what? It's fine. I'm, I'm cool with this. You know, this is something that you experience also as somebody getting older. I will not spoil you, but my uh, call to action this week is relevant. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. All right. Okay. That's good to know. Do you want to hop into story time right away? Sure. So today our theme is hope. I'm very intrigued by this theme. I know you'll go into a little more detail, but uh, I will, uh, when we get to Sam, I'll have some questions about it, but uh, carry on, please. So the word comes from Old English, hopa or hopian always meant like the same thing. So like a trust in something or a desire for something, a wish for a better future. What we think of hope today is pretty much like what hope has always meant. It's like a staple. It's a very staple thought. I recently attended a talk uh, with queer science fiction writer Becky Chambers, and she talked a lot about the themes that kind of come back in her books. And one of those themes is hope. She took a bit of time to talk about, 
in her view, obviously, like the difference between hope and optimism. And she said that optimism is the belief that everything will be all right. And hope is the belief that like we can do better. And I sort of think that this is a good place to situate our theme. You know, it's so funny when we have these terms or these thoughts that have such similar definitions, but we, I don't know if it's a human thing or just like a, a rule of language. We like to find those fine lines between definitions that are too close to help us lean one way or the other. Uh, it's kind of like uh, you always see that like it goes around the internet or hits Twitter every few years with the like, oh, here is a oddly specific term they have in insert language here that we don't have in English. And it's like, but it's a thing you often want to say. Like here we are within our own language making those granular directions with these words. And I think this one does it really well. Yeah, I think that this, you know, like this really stuck with me because you know, this idea of optimism and like everything will be okay is basically like a relinquishing of control over what can happen over the future. Whereas like that idea of hope and that we can do better, like kind of necessitates action on our part. You know, like we need to do something for things to get better. I think, I think that this is going to be interesting for our talk in this episode. And I feel like we need to talk about Bobby uh, and not only do we need to talk about Bobby in this episode, but we need to start with Bobby. Yeah, I think we do too. And I want to start with this quote. What exactly am I living for, huh? The damn apocalypse? Watching men die bloody while I sit in this chair? Can't take a step to help him? I'm old and broke down and I can't. I ain't a hunter no more. I'm useless. And if I wasn't such a coward, I'd have stuck a gun in my mouth the day I got home from the hospital. So I know that you love Bobby, so I can only imagine how difficult this must have been for you to hear. <laughs> this to me is someone who has truly lost hope. They truly don't feel they have a purpose anymore in the let's make the world a better place, let's fix things. They have really, they really feel like they have reached an end where they are now just a weight. And even if they have the optimism, even if deep down, you know, Bobby was optimistic that the boys would find a way and they would save the world or the apocalypse would end, if, even if there was optimism, there's no hope that he'd be a part of that. This whole idea that basically Bobby lives to be useful and that the moment that he he feels or he perceives that he has outlived his usefulness, all of a sudden he feels like his life is not worth living anymore. It's so weird because we have so often dealt with suicidal ideations on the show, whether it be through the indirect, like, let me sacrifice myself for the greater good moments or the being a little too reckless moments. This is the first time a character has really, like, that I can recall, correct me wrong, has explicitly stated the... I should have taken my own life. It feels like it's, you know, the first time that we have somebody like with a plan because we've heard Dean be pretty specific about what he wanted, but we've never heard him say something like this. This is, this is the first time that we encounter like this level of ideation, I think. Yeah, like this implies there was thought put into it or he's been thinking about it since then. Do we want to talk about Dean to kind of like help with uh, kind of, you know, healing 
that conversation a bit. Bring us some D knowledge. And and before we do, like I, I just sort of want to acknowledge that this episode is not about Sam or Dean. So there might not be a ton of things to say here. No, I feel like most of my thoughts about Sam and Dean almost more relate to Bobby than themselves. So, so regardless of how funny it was to see old Dean, I think that the best Dean moment of this episode, for me anyway, was his talk with Bobby at the at the very end of the episode. Because like in that moment, he's giving Bobby purpose again. And hopefully, you know, some hope again. And what he's telling him is that he matters to Dean and to Sam and that his death would be a huge loss for them. And I just want to loop in that this is something that Sam has said to Dean, I think in season two, when Dean was experiencing suicidal ideation. And at the time we had discussed that Sam reminding Dean of like his family bonds in order to keep him like connected to life is what worked in keeping Dean here. And it feels like right now, Dean is kind of hoping that the same thing is going to happen with Bobby. I think this season, we're really seeing a shift in Dean. As much as Sam is like growing up, I think Dean is really seeing a shift. And while this episode, I don't think is is the like most exemplary episode of Dean's evolution. This is a moment of him embracing something that I feel we've seen a good amount of this season already. And that is the embracing the family you choose versus the family you were given very much the found family and whereas the two major members of this family are bobby and his own blood brother we've now seen him choose sam versus being forced to take sam yeah 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 exactly and i know that we've had conversations about this that blood family can be chosen family as well but i i completely agree like it's it's kind of like this is Dean reminding Bobby that he still has ties to this world and that, you know, no matter what his perception of his usefulness is, people care about him regardless of what he can bring them. And I think that that is, that's, that's true love, you know, that is love and care towards another human being that like you are more than what you can provide to other people. You are wonderful as you are. Weirdly enough, this scene, this talk between Dean and Bobby, this huge highlight of this episode, in my opinion, weirdly brings me back to the end of last season when they were speaking together. And they were talking about Sam and just sort of the way they were treating Sam and taking care of Sam when they were trying to get him off the demon blood. Bobby's attempt to get Dean to see things from a different perspective. This is... Very similar, this is Dean having Bobby see Bobby through his own eyes. And, you know, it's one thing to say you're my found family. It's another thing to explain why and to, like, as you said, make Bobby understand that he is so loved and so needed. Even if he can't do what he used to do or things have changed, he hasn't. He is still Bobby. It's interesting because in, in that moment at the end of season four and now... You know, they are telling each other what they most need to hear. And I think that that's just a really nice thing. <laughs> Again, bottle episode, amazing emotional thing at the end, and so well done. I know, it was really well done. It was really, really well done. Shall we move on to our little Sammy? Yeah, I sort of wonder 
if Sam isn't showing optimism more than hope, like from the definitions that we've sort of like worked out. Thank you, Becky Chambers. Like, because he's like, I can beat this guy, even though apparently he's terrible at poker. Like, what was that about? So I think this was a long con. And I think we're used to seeing that from both of them in the way they've kind of made their way through life. Uh, I wasn't even this season we saw Sam play poker, uh, not poker, a pool and like be surprisingly good at it and almost like hustle some people. Oh, yeah. Hustling people, like pretending to be drunk and everything. And I think there's a part of Sam that like knew what he was getting into and kind of either like. And I also feel like this is just pure headcanon, but like Sam can count cards. There's no way he can. He's too smart. (laughs) Like maybe not to like the nth degree that would get him kicked out of Vegas, but like enough to be able to sit there and go like, okay, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I know, I I know where, I know where the stack is. I know where we're going a little bit here. Uh, The the deck's hotter. And I feel like I, I would almost love to see the alternate take of this episode where like the hands played a bit differently. But I think he wasn't, I think there was optimism, but I think also, and that's why I kind of feel like this is weird. I don't know if it was optimism or hope. I think this is just raw confidence. I know. It just feels a little different from the Sam that we've seen this entire season. Like it feels very much like Sam from last season, but it doesn't really feel like season five Sam anyway. No, this feels like a Sam who is almost proving to himself his worth. I'm going to reference a film you have not seen that I am constantly bugging you to see, but this feels like the end of Scott Pilgrim. Uh, And for those who have seen the film, I'm referring to his second attempt at the final boss uh, when he admits, I'm not doing this for them. I'm doing this for me. Like, yes, ultimately Sam's goal is to save his brother and, you know, get out of this alive and like solve the case. But there's a part of him that's doing this for himself to prove to himself that he can do it on his own. I mean, honestly, I can't disagree. Like, this, I, okay. It's weird because, like, I have no canon evidence that goes against what you're saying, but it just feels off for this episode. That's that. And I think that's why I'm just a little reluctant, but I, I see what you're saying. And I feel like that is true, particularly to the character that we've seen developing over the last few seasons. And again, like you said, there's no evidence for or against any of this. This is very just, you know, reading the room, it's implications. It's picking up on little things that just I pick up on someone else. Again, as we've always discussed in story time, uh, more than anything else, it's interpretation and maybe someone can turn around and say, no, I disagree. I think Sam was purely going off luck and just trying his luck and being very hopeful. And that, again, that it's a perfectly valid reading in theory. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I'm like, all right, okay. I, I accept it. I don't like it, but I accept it. <laughs> oh, goodness. Do you want to talk about anybody else this week? I actually do. I would like to talk about Leah because again, like we're in this episode that basically is not about the brothers and is sort of kind of about Bobby, but like mostly it's about these two characters that we've like never seen. We have no emotional investment in. I didn't think it was sad. Like I didn't care about Leah enough to be sad at the end of the episode. It's going to sound terrible, but like it wasn't Leah I was sad for. Oh, oh, that's an interesting take. 
And like the funniest thing too is as I'm writing my notes and like updating everything, I realize I never actually wrote down his name, so I can't remember what his name is. His name is Patrick. <laughs> Patrick, thank you. Of course, he's Irish. He has to have a generic. Irish he's name. Irish. He has to be named Patrick, right? It's that or Declan. Seriously, guys, better better naming, please. You could do this. I believe in you. Less cliche names, but I genuinely. So Leah is literally giving up eternal life. She has reached a point where she has lost hope. Uh, she specifically, she's lost her daughter and realizes that living without her is more painful and wishes to be let go from this mortal coil. And Patrick abides, literally leaving Patrick in the same shoes she was in moments ago. You know, Patrick has no one else he holds dear or close, and they are now gone forever. I mean, we all imagine eternal life being this amazing gift. And I, I know there's always the gift of the magi and like the monkey's paw type of like, what does eternal life really mean? Seeing the people you love die. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not something new or like groundbreaking as a concept, but just seeing how it can affect somebody and then being so unable to go on that you cause that same pain to somebody else not to say leah was wrong for doing this leah had every right to decide when her internal life should end and the fact that she i I get the vibe there was never really a conversation and patrick was forcing her to stay but you know i feel like there was some kind of a fight there until he finally did let her go I don't, I sort of disagree with that because he, he said like, oh, you want to, you said he was surprised by all this. Right. So clearly like there, I don't think that there was uh, a fight about it. I think that she just, you know, it's one of those things where in relationships, sometimes like you start feeling something and then you just, you don't voice it until one day you sort of have to. Right. And like, this is, that's what I saw. It, It feels as if she's been feeling this for a while. And there was never really any conversation about it. So I don't think Patrick was in the know and like preventing it. And as you said, as soon as she finally does admit this, there's initially a resistance to it. Like Patrick isn't like, okay, fine, go by, I'm done. Like there is like, you can see he's hurt and doesn't want to let her go uh, is what I'm getting to. But then that also opens up the, why didn't they just make her daughter immortal? It feels like a missed opportunity for Patrick to keep his beloved forever, you know? Like, if all he had to do is to keep her daughter alive, that, like... I mean, come on, Patrick. Be a good stepdad. Yeah, like, like, did she never think to pitch this to Patrick? Was it just like, oh, I missed her. Should have had Patrick make her immortal. Should have thought of that several centuries ago. Damn. To sort of come back to our theme... The opposite of hope in French, so hope in French is espoir, and the opposite of that is désespoir. So, and that translates to despair. So basically, like the way that you sort of describe the situation or or the, the dynamics of the relationship between Leah and Patrick, what I'm hearing is that the moment she lost hope, because the person that she loved most died, She was filled with despair and she wanted to die, leaving the other person that she loved alone for the rest of his life. I think the only solace I can take from that is that she had high enough hopes for him that he would be able to move on and live without her. 
You know, I mean, like, it, it's dark to say, but I have a hope that if I ever leave this mortal coil, the people I'm leaving behind can survive without me. Is that hope or optimism, though? No, it's hope. Like, I actively would like to take steps in my life to make sure that if and when, if and when, when I go. If and when. If, you know, because what you didn't tell me is that you do have the magical chips. <laughs> I'm getting better at poker, okay? <laughs> there you go. We had a month off. What do you think I did? I learned pedophile poker. <laughs> now I just need a witch. I'm halfway there, right? <laughs> step, step one, poker. Step two, witch. Step three, I don't know. Step four, profit. No, but I, I think there's, yes, I think this is where hope and optimism might become a little more of a fuzzy line and there could be a much deeper conversation of which way it goes. But I feel like there is a part of her able to leave believing that Patrick will be able to move on and find new joy in his life and be able to continue living without her. Do you think that she really thinks that or do you think that that doesn't matter to her as much as ending her life? I feel like if we got to know them more, it'd be easier. But with the li limited information we have. I completely agree with you. And this is why I get I kind of get mad at those episodes. Because like you get these characters who could potentially be really, really good characters. But you're only with them for like about 15 minutes in total. And so you don't really have time to kind of like get to know them. To be able to talk about them the way that they deserve. Because they're basically the central story in that episode. So yeah, I, this is something that I... I have trouble with, I guess, in terms of like more critical time and like the structure of the episode. But yeah, I, I guess I'm just like really amazed at the link. Like if we're looking like at values or messaging in this episode, like the link between feeling useful or purposeful and hope, like those two things are very, very linked in this, you know, writing. And so I think that that says something about what the, what the writers believe. So I think if I can end story time on kind of another thought-provoking point, I'd like to give a kind of a counterpoint to your previous point. And I think sometimes having characters like this, especially in these one-offs that are not fully fleshed out, leave a lot more room for projection. Right. That's very true. I, I think, again, it's the double-edged sword of like, we'll never know how she truly felt. We never really got to see like... How long has she been feeling this way? Has she tried to end her life in other ways? Is this the first time she's trying a trick like this with the, the Winchesters? Like, we don't know that whole backstory. It could be just a few weeks she's been feeling this. It could be 200 years for all we know. Literally thousands of years, technically, even. The fact that we don't know allows us as an audience to project the themes from this episode and our own thoughts and feelings onto these characters to help us as viewers understand things. And again, tons of room for fan fiction. That is very true. Although again, like you wouldn't want to write fan fiction about them because you don't know them enough. <laughs> oh, the, the, I will make up some crazy stuff for them. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Let's move on down to critical time. If you're okay with that. Sure thing. This episode was written by Sarah Gamble and Jenny Klein and directed by Robert Singer. Jenny Klein. Is that a new name? Actually? Yes. It is a new name. You know what? I feel like we've had a occasional name in these credits that I've like don't recognize. And they've done like one episode. Maybe we didn't bring it up in time or it didn't become like apparent right away. So kudos on me. Pat on the back for actually recognizing one this time. Yeah, no, that's amazing. This is her first episode with Sarah Gamble and she is going to write 
a few other episodes throughout the series all the way up until season 11. Oh, wow. Good tenure. I know, right? What's in the Hunter's Journal for this week? Let's crack it on open. I woke up bound to a chair. I didn't recognize my surroundings, though I don't think anyone would unless they were as old and rotted as the walls around me. Though clearly I was not alone. The creaking of floorboards in the adjacent room told me as much. Suddenly, a young woman entered the room. She pulled up another chair from the dilapidated pile of scrap that may have once been a table. She eyed me up and down and let her oily black eyes show. A demon. She wasn't hiding it. Seems to crack a smile as she caught me flitting my eyes around for potential escape plans. She scooted her chair closer. And finally she spoke. Here's the deal. You pick a game. If you win, I leave this town and no one dies. You lose. And I get to eat you. Fair? I did not respond as this was clearly a trap, right? She stood up and whipped her hand across the space in front of my face and I felt that unnatural force grab myself in the chair and flung us around, a near-perfect 180 degree, stopping me mere inches away from a shelf. A shelf that... A shelf that clearly had joined me here equally recently. It was new, well-built, no rats, no mold. Just... Just a lot of board games. Dozens. Dozens of modern and, you know, really good-looking board games. I was speechless and very, very confused. She leaned against the shelf and ran her fingers down the edge, eyeing her collection. Well, choice is yours. I remained still. A few moments more, but before she had a chance to change her tone, I simply said, I could go for a round of Settlers of Catan. Her smile grew as she collected the game and set it upon a fresh table that was surely not there before. My binding shuffled and now my arms were free, and I was gently pushed into place at the table. She sat and began shaking the dice in her hands and proclaimed, I'm red. Well, that is quite the return to recording. I figured something a little lighter for once. I feel like going through edits, the last few have been very dark. And I just, I, I think I brought it up a while ago in one of the episodes where I did some writing about like the, the whole idea of like playing games with like death to like save yourself. And it's sort of like just a weird trope where despite it only existing in like one old story and it's been just propagated as like essentially a meme or a trope since then, the idea of like playing games with like the supernatural. I, I just, I imagine there's going to be some demons out there who are like, yeah, I'm tired of chess. Can we play something more fun? I literally just posted a fan fiction where that is the hunt that they go on. They hunt a demon that like plays dice i can't remember exactly what i wrote but like it's <laughs> it's based off a taylor swift song <laughs> send me the link send yes 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 link. i'll send you the link <laughs> oh what a bonus double hunter's journal essentially yeah basically <laughs> any thoughts to share with us this week so i rewatched this episode and i was really i thought it was really funny that the first thing literally that happens in the episode like after the cold open is that the medical examiner doesn't believe Sam and Dean that they're from the CDC is the center for disease control in the U S like she doesn't believe them because they're arriving early. And that's really unusual to her. <laughs> I forgot about that. 
And Dean replies, new administration, a change you can believe in. And I sort of just want to give some historical context for this because, you know, I'm thinking maybe about our younger listeners who might not remember this the way that I do. Like, this episode aired in October 2009, and that was the first year of Barack Obama's presidency. Now, I I really don't want to gloss over the fact that Obama's legacy is complicated, to say the least. No matter who the president is, the United States of America is an imperial state, and that is you know, the way it is, like it actively looks to like expand its power beyond its own borders through politics, economics, culture, and media. I mean, just look at us. We're two Canadian people and a Canadian producer, and we're talking about an American TV show that is promoting actively American culture. So let's just keeping that in mind, you know, that said, I remember watching the 2008 election with actual hope. That is probably the last time in my life that I felt political hope because it felt like things could change. And these were really, really dark times. Like George W. Bush had been president for eight years. Uh, There was war. The entire financial system was on the verge of collapsing. Does that remind you of anything that's going on right now? But anyway, people were losing their jobs, losing their homes, like losing their entire life savings because banks were going bankrupt. And, and, and again, like we've talked a lot about suicidal ideation on, on this podcast, but like there were reports of people killing themselves and their entire families because they were going to lose their home and lose their lives. And, you know, death seemed like a better option to them. And at the time, Obama really represented a hope that, yes, we can do better. And so, like, this silly little line in this silly little TV show about angels and demons is, like, such a poignant artifact of that moment in time. I didn't even put that together, like, just how much meaning there was behind that silly little, like, one-off. And that's the thing, right? Like, we forget sometimes that this show has been running or had been running for so long, but, like, this was literally a new hope at the time well i am hopeful that we'll get something really interesting in our community voicemail this week shall we yes let's go this week we have a message from rania before we listen to it we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail to respond to anything we discussed today you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, if Sam had not had a good hand against Patrick, would he have played differently for our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk? All right, so Rania sent us an email, which I will read to you. It does say that it is spoiler-free, so we're good to go. Oh, thank you. We appreciate it. Hey, Marie and Drew, I know this isn't a voicemail, but I was hoping a good old-fashioned email would be okay to send in. Of course it is. Something I wanted to point out that I thought was really interesting and that you guys might also find interesting was the repetition of the phrase, it was always you throughout the show. The first time I remember it being said was in season five, episode three, where something comes to Sam in a dream. Oh, well, we know what the something is now. Yeah, where basically Lucifer comes to Sam in a dream and tells him, because it had to be you, Sam, it always had to be you. In regard to something that I cannot say yet, because it can be considered a spoiler, but if you know, you know. 
None of these have context attached to them, so zero spoilers, don't worry, Drew. Anyway, it happens again in the next episode when Dean gets sent somewhere. This is so, this is so cute. Sorry, like parenthesis, but like, this is really cute. Thank you so much for the no spoilers. It's just, you know, like we're, we're at the point now where we know what those are. So it'll be interesting for Drew to kind of like weave the things back together. (laughs) (laughs) It's a game and a voicemail. I know. (laughs) I mean, that's what most of them are for us, Drew. (laughs) (laughs) In it, someone again said, but it had to be your brother. It had to be, and this time to Dean. And then again, in the next episode, changing channels, someone tells Sam and Dean, it's your destiny. It was always you. I'm not sure where else this is said because I'm still on season seven of my rewatch, but in 15 seasons, there are two more instances of this phrase being said. In season 15, episode 18, Billy tells Dean, it's you, Dean. It's always been you. Now, the last time this phrase was said, which I'm sure you already know where I'm going with this, was in the finale. Dean tells Sam, what it all came down to was, it was always you and me. It's always been you and me. This is noteworthy, especially because of the dramatic pause between you and me. Because of the pause, I first thought that he was going to say, it's always been you, like how it's originally been repeated throughout the series. But then he added the and me at the end, and it was really impactful because it really always has been him and Sam not one or the other, not them put against each other and not them apart. But instead it was them together as a team, of course, including all the family that they found along the way. I was just curious as to what you guys made of this and if you've picked up on any instances of this before season five. I just found it very interesting and I haven't read anything about it online, even though it's been a reoccurring phrase since at least season five. Anyway, that's all I have to say. I hope you guys have a great day. P.S. I listen to your podcast while I'm cooking or walking home from work. You always keep me entertained. Take care. Given where we have actually gotten to in our watching and recording schedule, I am aware that I believe it was Cass saying it to Dean about Sam in the future. Uh, the end world, whatever we were calling it there. Uh, Endverse, yes. Endverse, thank you. Yes, verse. I'm like, oh my god, this was so long ago. <laughs> it's probably like just one or two episodes prior to this one. So people are going to be like, how do they not remember? It's been months, you guys. <laughs> the magic of time. The magic of time. Wait till we do Doctor Who, then get the magic of time. As soon as the line was read, I feel like it has come up before season five. I'll be very curious to know, and I don't expect an answer, obviously, if the instance in the finale where it is, it's always been you and me, is the only instance of the and me part. The first instance that I remember of it had to be you is Ruby saying it to Sam in in 422. Because it had to be you, Sammy. It always had to be you. You saved us. You set him free. He's going to be grateful. He's going to repay you in ways that you can't even imagine. This is, I guess, partial prediction, but also just like a critical view of writing. But I love the idea of this becoming a recurring line. And the fact that we're already kind of getting there, I think is interesting. Because I think it's the kind of line that can shift in so many ways. Like we've now seen it as a negative and we've also seen it as i guess a potential positive i think right now it's mostly been negatives it's mostly been a things went wrong and it was always because of you i sort of wonder if azazel hasn't said this to sam too yeah i can kind of imagine azazel saying it even to dean in the green room azazel was not in the green room 
Um, not Azazel, Zachariah. Sorry, they're both evil assholes I hate, so. I think Zachariah has said it to Dean, but I'm talking about Azazel saying it to Sam in previous seasons. That's Maybe. The, yeah. I wonder if there isn't something there, too. But I I mean, I, I'm looking at the script now, so for sure it's been said in season four. I guess I can't fully answer this question because, Rania, you're only on season seven. I think that this is explained or like that it had to be you, even though like, I don't think that this was something that they were thinking about, you know, in the early seasons, certainly like in the last few, there's definitely like that contentious relationship between a creator and its creation. And so I think here that this is sort of what's being hinted at, you know, in, in the long run. Uh, I don't think that this was the intention at the moment, but I think again, like if you're looking at the, at the work as a whole, that's sort of how I would tend to read it, how I would go about talking about it, saying that this is hinting at that future contentious relationship. I'm trying not to say too much, but to say enough that people will understand. I feel like there's something to be said for when a line or a sentiment or kind of a a moment in a show becomes so standout-ish that it then gets emulated and replicated and becomes part of the show's, like, language. And I feel like this might be one of those instances where it wasn't necessarily planned but became such a powerful line that it kind of kept getting dipped into for those good moments. And again, if my hypothesis is correct and the final instance of it, as you stated in this uh, message is that it is a, it's always been you and me, an evolution of this line for this final reprisal, I think is very powerful and kind of magical. And I'll be very curious to see how it gets there. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely like some, a recurring motif, like throughout the series, I think that needs to be looked at. Well, in that case, genuinely, thank you for this message. And as we said before, voicemail or email, always fine. That way you get one of us reading and commenting at the same time. It's very quirky. Ah, I love it. Drew, shall we move on to our reflection and call to action? Let's go. Do you want to get us started? Yes, as I alluded to earlier, I kind of had a very obvious one, this one. And um, it's a connection to uh, Old Man Dean. As some of our listeners and uh, you, Mary, may know, I had a a bit of a fall at Comic-Con and sprained my ankle. I realize we haven't spoken in a while, so I have not had the follow-up with you that I also fell down the stairs on that ankle about a week ago. Uh, Surprisingly a lot better. There was no, like, lasting damage. I was just basically stuck on my basement floor sitting in the fetal position for, like, an hour while my friends moved furniture for me. I felt real useful. Kind of like the the comments they make to Dean or Bobby does to Dean, like, you know, especially with the burger. You know, you get old, your body changes, you gotta take different kind of care of it, and... You know, it wasn't so many years ago that I could fall and hurt myself while drunk and be totally fine the next day. And here I am, what is it, over a month later, and I still have trouble walking up and down stairs sometimes with my ankle. You know, I can't just, you know, brush it off and hope everything's fine. I've got to be a mature adult and be responsible. And I've gotten the contact info for a proper osteopath to go look about getting my ankle looked at and hopefully be able to live on it more easily. As a man, taking care of yourself is an act of rebellion. 
like genuinely, it is revolutionary. You know, as we know, like men, men are tough. Men don't need doctors. Men don't need medical professionals. Men continue to rebel against that and take care of yourself. It's really important. I'm like looking forward to, I have a day off coming up. I'm going to try to like book it all at once. So I go to my osteopath and get my foot looked at and then go for a massage or a mani-pedi and just really have a good like me day. That's a really great you day. Well, speaking of you. I'm still kind of fresh off of the talk with Becky Chambers. And like, honestly, like I really loved it. It was really great. As much as I'm only three weeks in and I can tell that like this PhD is literally going to kick my butt. I'm where I'm meant to be. Like this talk was basically given through the Institute for Gender, Sexuality and Feminist Studies, of which I'm a member, by the way, because I'm doing a concentration for my PhD in gender studies. I'm still fresh off of that talk. And the idea that hope comes from within has honestly been a bit of an earth shattering one for me. Like I had never seen hope as like intrinsic before. I think it's because I really conflated hope and optimism. So I feel like I don't know how I experience hope. Like, I don't know the difference, like what that practically looks like between hope and optimism. And so my call to action is to observe when I feel hope and when I feel a lack of hope and and to try to like, just notice for now so that I can understand myself a little bit better. I think that's very important and I'm very happy you're taking those steps. Thank you. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigahu and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Rania for her message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying Wayward and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. I know I put it in there. I was like, that way I will not forget because right now my brain is just like a, what is, what are the, a colander? It's just everything gets through. <laughs>